0: If you're able, please stand for the reading of the word. This morning I'll be reading from Ephesians 1. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may perceive what is the hope to which he has called you and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning, Highland. It is good to have you here. As Leah said, my name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, we're at the end of our series called Deliver Us. And this is where we've been for the entire fall. Uh, We've been walking together and and thinking about how how do we fight? The evil one. How are we delivered from evil? And this is kind of like a, a postscript to that sermon series. And the, the thesis of the series has been pretty straightforward. The lies of the evil one that are spo- to the battleground of our minds take root in our bodies which disorder our desires and are normalized by a sinful society, that is the world. And we've been walking through this journey with a book called uh, Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. And if you haven't read it yet, um, you should. It's a good book. But in this last part, as we've been focusing on the world, I want us to be clear about who our enemy is. The world isn't our real enemy, is it? No, it's the evil one. The world... And all the people there are actually just kind of semi-complicit victims in the whole affair. They're not complete victims in the sense that they did nothing wrong. They're complicit in some way, in the way that all of us are. After all, the world is you and me. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are in desperate need of God's grace. So let me be blunt today. What the world needs is Jesus. And God's best plan to offer Jesus to the world is the church. So you, you are God's best design for telling the redemption story to the world. It's you. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for today. For your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. Father, we're grateful for this place that we can gather, for the community that is formed here, the community that shapes us and molds us and encourages us, spurns us to be more like you. Father, for this meal that we shared of your son's body and blood, for the way that it connects us together. And Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these your people. It's together that the church says, Amen. So the book of Ephesians begins with this beautiful prayer. And in the version we read, there are several sentences, but if you were to read it in the original Greek, It is one long-flowing thought, which Paul wrote, and it's almost like he doesn't even want to pause for breath. But like most New Testament letters, the thanksgiving and the prayer kind of introduces, or is a preview of all the themes that Paul is going to address. This prayer for illumination of the readers foreshadows uh, chapter 4, verse 14 and following. The prayer of hope points to the promise of new life in chapter two and the affirmation of the church as Christ's body is the basis of unity that Paul's going to comment on in chapters two and four. And Ephesians as a letter is is the strongest affirmation of unity in the New Testament. It affirms strongly the uh, unity of God the Father and Jesus the Son. It affirms the unity of heaven and earth and the unity of the believers in Christ and the unity of the church not that the church always gets it right we don't have to look long through history to find examples of the church failing to do the mission that god has given it We begin with the crusades or the native american orphanages in canada and the northern u.s supporting slavery in the american south the church has been the source or complicit in many policies and actions that have caused harm and so how does this misguided group of sinners, sometimes feeling blindfolded as they fumble through the next difficult choice, how does this institution complete Christ, as Paul says? And maybe our answer is in verse 17. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, we're in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, about verse 15 and following. But in verse 17, Paul says that our true purpose is to know christ better that's the job of the church that's our that's our goal that's our meaning that's why we exist to know christ better and here at highland that ties directly into our pathway here at highland if you want to be a part of who we are if you want to be a member here if you want to be engaged in what we're doing uh, in abilene and in our in the world then we want you to follow the pathway And it's pretty straightforward. It's what we've committed ourselves here at Highland to do. First, we want you to know God more clearly, the true God, through our worship together. We want you to show up and we want you to worship fully. We want you to know one another through small gatherings and and times shared at tables, not only uh, the Lord's Supper, but also hot dogs and hamburgers that we just eat together. We want you to, to feel and fall in love with one another. We want you to grow in your commitment to Christ in your baptism story. Baptism is just the beginning of what happens as we walk along, as we grow further in love and more mature in our relationship with God. And those three commitments to one another, to worship God and to grow more fully leads us to a place where we look like Jesus a little more than we did yesterday. And looking like Jesus a little bit more sometimes involves suffering and service for the sake of others, that we pour ourselves out like Jesus did on the cross. And hopefully these four things tied together, worship, baptism, table, and cross, leads us to a place of restoration. If you want to be a part of Highland, that's what you need to commit your life to. Not because we always are going to get it right, we certainly will not. Not because we're always on the right side of history on every issue, because we're not But what we are are the people who work continually to know and reveal Christ better. And there is nothing else like the church on earth that is committed to this task. So there's three things that we see here in Ephesians chapter 1, in this prayer of thanksgiving that Paul offers. There's three things that Paul wants the Ephesians, those churches, to know. The first thing is to know the hope of God's calling. The second is to know the riches that are available to you among the saints. And by saints, he's not talking about those kind of super spiritual Christians or those that are holier than holy. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about everyone. To know the riches that are available to you among the saints and to know the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. I want you to imagine with me for a minute an orphan. An eight-year-old orphan girl living in a home of some sort. And a woman goes and visits her and sits down with her and says, we're going to have a conversation. I'm looking to adopt a child, and I want to talk to you about that. And that little girl is filled with hope and expectation and maybe a little trepidation. As that conversation begins. But at the end of that conversation, in our imaginations, this woman says, You know what? I would like you to be my daughter. Would you come home with me? I want to adopt you. Now, you might think of a lot of responses that that eight-year-old girl might have, but one of them is probably not an inquiry like, So, how much money is your bank account exactly? Or, have you started saving for my college college? education yet of course not she wouldn't do any of those things she would jump into that woman's arms and she would say yes paul says that hope that comes from knowing god that called you now in first corinthians chapter one paul talks a little bit more about this he talks about what it means to be called into the church into god's kingdom. And in 1 first, first Corinthians chapter 1, he's going to remind the people that not many of them are, are wise or rich. Not many of them are powerful or important. In fact, God chooses these things to shame those that are. It was very fortunate this morning in the New York Times, there was an article about handsome comedians. Like Matt Reif. I don't know if you know Matt. He's on TikTok. Um... He's handsome. I mean, that man is gorgeous. His (laughs) shin line, oh, he has abs. And here's the thing about Matt Reif. Most people don't become funny because they're handsome. Most people become funny because they are bullied, right? Most people become funny because in elementary school and middle school, they have to find a way to win that doesn't involve being the strongest, right? And that's how they learn to develop comedy. And that's why most comedians look a lot more like Jerry Seinfeld and the Hot Pockets guy. What's his name? Jim Gaffigan than Matt Reif, right? Matt Reif doesn't belong in that group. And that's why they have personalities. And there was this line in the article in the New York Times from a late night writer, he's not on TV, but he writes, and he said, you've let the popular kids appropriate the very art form that helped you deal. And I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for Matt. Handsome guys like us, we, it's hard for us. It's, it's difficult. And, but look, here's the thing. If you look like you just walked out of a perfume ad, life really isn't that hard for you. Now, I said that in first service, and somebody in first service that looks like they walked out of a perfume ad came to me and said, you don't know my life, you don't know how difficult it is, and I I really tried hard to not laugh while I was being pastorally sensitive to them. That's not true. That didn't happen. Look, look, it's not that hard for you. The reason why actors and models have a stereotype of not being that smart is because it's true, right? Not always, but it's mostly true. What got them there wasn't necessarily their brain. Now I say all that to say this. You aren't a Christian because you're smart or you're important or you're powerful. That's not what got you here. You are here because God loves you. You are here because God chose you. That's all the difference in the world. So go back to her a minute with that orphan story and imagine that little girl actually is adopted by someone who is extremely rich and extremely powerful. She doesn't know it. She just kind of got won the lottery in a sense. And there's going to come a moment when they have a conversation. There's going to come a moment when that adopted daughter has a conversation and she realizes who her family is and what that means for her future. Not just that she'll be comfortable for the rest of her life, comfortable is like code word for rich, but that she will need to do something important with the inheritance that she will receive. I have a friend of mine that I grew up with in elementary and and middle school, after um, high school for a little bit. We went to the the same arts magnet. And, And he lived in one part of Denver, and I lived in another part of Denver, and he lived in kind of that upper, wealthy, middle-class part of Denver. And I, I, didn't, I didn't understand what his family did. Frankly, I didn't care. Because when he came to my house, we ate pizza and we watched movies. And we went to his house, we ate pizza and we watched movies. His house was just a little bit bigger than my house was. That's all it was. Well, my friend ends up going to college, and he, and he meets a woman, and he falls in love, and he gets married. And about a year and a half after they got married, his parents sat them both down and had a conversation. And, and he didn't know, and his parents had kept it from him, um, that they weren't just like upper middle class. They were extremely wealthy. But they had raised him and his brothers in such a way that they just weren't aware of that. And I thought this was a beautiful gift that his parents gave him. They didn't tell him that until after he was married so that he would always have confidence of his partner's intention. It wasn't just for the money. It was for love. God chose you to show that despite the fact that we aren't wise, despite the fact that we aren't strong, despite the fact that we aren't powerful, God loves us. Because salvation doesn't consist of those things, power and money and beauty. The church doesn't consist of those things. And what it consists of is the Jesus' death and resurrection so that we might know God. And this sounds a lot like the hymn in Philippians chapter 2 because Christ submits to the Father in death, even death on a cross, and because of that submission, God exalts Jesus and places him in the head of the cosmos, the universe, everything. And God set the resurrected Christ at God's own right hand above all in all authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this but now forever putting all things under his feet and made him head over everything. But then this prayer gets interesting for two reasons. God gave Christ everything for the purpose of the church. God gives Christ the cosmos, everything, for the purpose of serving the church. And this is the paradox of of, of the Christian world. Because Christ gives up everything and submits to the will of the Father, dies death on a cross, God raises him up. And even then in that resurrection and that ascension, God gives him those things, not for his own glory, but to serve the church. And there's this other interesting part at the end of this text, look in verse, chapter, verse uh, 22 and 23. At the, the line at the very end is this notion that the church completes Jesus. Paul writes, and he put all things under his feet and made him the head over all things for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And it's almost as if in this, the end of this prayer that Paul runs to the edge of the usefulness of his own words. And scholars have worked and debated over exactly what verse 22 and 23 means because it's not exactly clear. It's like he, he wants to describe this moment and this concept, but the, the words that he have are falling short. And, and you've been at that place where words fail. You know what that feels like when you're, when you're captivated by the, the beauty of, of Yosemite or the Grand Canyon, or the way for the smile of your beloved just knocks your knees out, that swell in your chest when your child says, "I love you." Karl Barth says that Ephesians 1:23 contains, in the form of oppositions, two definitions of the church. She is Christ's body. And she is his fullness. And maybe this is something Paul is is borrowing from his Jewish roots. There's this tradition that runs parallel to the Old Testament. And and this tradition uh, comments on the sense that Adam contained us all. And in one way, it's it's talking about kind of original sin, that all of us are there with Adam in the moment when Adam breaks covenant with God, and so we're all kind of contained in that moment. But there's also this sense of which Adam had us all there in that moment, almost like genetically, all of the diversity of of humanity was, was held up in Adam's body. You are God's plan A. You are the best thing that God could imagine when he wanted to tell the world about his son. It's you. And I got to tell you the truth. If we take this text seriously, if we believe that every resource in the cosmos is at our hands for the sake of telling other people about God's love... If we take seriously that Jesus Christ, who's been at the right hand of God, ascended to the the greatest person in in the universe, is for us, and in fact, we complete him by doing the work that God has called us to do, it will change the way that we understand church. Because membership is less about a name on a roster and more about a transformed life and purpose. Admission is less about having information that needs to be shared and more about having a space at a table where others can join. And service is less about what we have to offer and more about the community we create when we give and we receive. And if it was just for us, as Evan said, the story would have ended there. It would be enough. But somehow in God's economy, somehow in the wisdom of God's spirit, there is always more for us to see if we choose to be church. Gordon McLean said, if we seek to be a social club, we will lose to the country club. If we seek to be the local hangout, we'll lose to the coffee shop. However, if we seek to provide an atmosphere where we can think, grow, and feel in ways that gain deeper insight into ourselves, our world, and the God who works within it, we will tap into that glorious wealth to which the text refers. That is, we will realize our potential as the church, which is meant to complete Jesus Christ by serving as a vehicle for his work, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others and for this world we all share. We're in church today because we follow Jesus. And this this text is fascinating. It, it's in the liturgical calendar, which, which some churches follow. We kind of dip our toes in it. We, we celebrate Lent and we celebrate Advent. But some churches follow this rhythm throughout the year. And this text, Ephesians 1, this prayer that Paul offers, they read it on Ascension Day. Because... Because Jesus it's in Acts one. It's when Jesus rises into the, crowd, the clouds with the promise of his return. But Ephesians 1 casts this story with cosmic significance. In the Ascension, God exercises a claim over the church and over all of creation. God exercises might by giving Christ authority over every kind of power, heaven and earthly, benign or male, 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 malevolent that's a hard word. Christ has authority now and forevermore. Christ is the head of the church in the sense that he's the source of the church. And we are his body. Christ is the source of the church the way that if you chase the Mississippi River up north and north and north, eventually you will find the spring by which it begins. Every mighty river starts at snow runoff from mountains or a spring. It's the head of the river. That's who Christ is for us. We, We connect to him. And we're his, we're his body. You are God's plan A for the cosmos. And there's no plan B, that you are the only plan for showing the world what reordered passions look like, what reordered community looks like, what a mind looks like when it has fought the fight with the lies of the evil one and through the power found victory. It is us. it always has been. Would you please stand for our benediction? Church, this week, I want you to be bold. And I want you to be kind. I want you to see the face of Jesus in the world. Because he died for the world. Because he loves the world. Because he loves you. So may you, may you be filled with courage this week. Be filled with compassion. Go in God's wisdom and go in peace.